Hey, everybody, we're talking to Doug Knoll today. What an amazing guy. He is a former trial lawyer, has some incredible stories around teaching leaders how to use their emotions as part of their hidden genius. He's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Dallas Burnett in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers barber chair. But more importantly, we have a great guest today. We are in the middle of the holiday season, and I can't think of a better show than one that deals with conflict and listening well. So we have an expert on the topic. Welcome to the show, Doug. Hey, Dallas. Thanks for having me. I am. I'm excited to have you on the show. Like I said, you're an expert in training leaders on listening and using emotions and all these things that we're going to talk about. But I just thought as leaders, we like to stand last 10%. But you know what? Everybody's going to be sitting around the kitchen table over the holidays and Sometimes that can be a little stressful. So I figured this would be a good, good episode for everybody. It's really tough. We've got the Middle East crisis in Israel. We've got the war in Ukraine, tensions with China, the political craziness going on in this country. It's inevitable that when people gather around the dining room table with Thanksgiving or Christmas, that they're going to be different opinions and people are going to get a little hot, especially when they've been drinking a little bit of alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bad, it's a bad cocktail of all those things for sure. But we've got some great news for people. You're going to have some tools that you can use to navigate that a little bit better as we go through the conversation today. So, Doug, I want to talk to you a little bit about your story because it's very unique. Your path to where you are today did not start as this leadership communication expert. You were a trial lawyer. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, my journey started in Southern California. I was grew up in affluence. And, but unfortunately I was born with a lot of disabilities. I was partially mm. blind, partially deaf, bad teeth, left-handed, two club feet, couldn't walk until I was four years old after multiple surgeries. Good. And in the 1950s, I was born in 1950. In the 1950s, I wasn't so disabled that they would put me away somewhere, but <laughs> nobody had either the patience nor the knowledge of how to deal with a kid like me. The one mm. thing I was, I was super smart, but people couldn't figure out why I was not doing well in school until in the fourth grade, a school nurse got the broad idea to test my eyesight and found out that my vision was 2,400. Oh. And so I had been struggling in school for six years and they got glasses on me. And that summer I advanced three grade levels in one summer in my reading ability oh. just because I could that's, see. That's incredible. Anyways, I it was a tough childhood and I didn't get a lot of emotional support. So I picked up a lot of really bad emotional habits that were adaptive to allow me to survive. But coming in, going into adulthood became really maladaptive. I was super smart, got accepted to Dartmouth, went to Dartmouth College, Ivy League for four years, came back to California, went to law school, did really well in law school and didn't know if I wanted to be a lawyer or not. But law school in those days, if you didn't go to med school out of Ivy League, you went to you went to law school. And so that's what I did. And decided to move to central California because I love being in the mountains and worked wow. for an appellate judge for a year and then went into private practice as a young associate in a firm in Fresno, California in September of 1978. And two months later, I was trying my first jury trial. Oh, and that's wow. how my career started. And oh, for the next goodness. 22 years, I, was, I became a really hardcore trial lawyer. Wow. The story gets interesting because in the 1980s, my mid-30s, I picked up the martial arts and earned my second degree black belt right around my 40th birthday in 1990. And at that time, my teacher said, go learn Tai Chi. 
So I so this is you're doing this, but you were telling us earlier about all these disabilities. So you're doing this in spite of it gold. was not easy. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was not easy. Uh it was a real struggle. But mm. I learned the one thing I've learned through all of this getting through all these disabilities is I know how I learn. I know that I can learn anything. Mm. I'm extremely patient and with myself and I'm persistent and I'm really disciplined. And I, I can do okay. anything. Anything I put my mind to doing, I can do. I, there's nothing in the mm. world that I couldn't do that's at least if it's not age dependent that I cannot do. I can do anything if I want to. Awesome. It's, just, it's just a question of how much time and effort am I willing to put into it to master it. Right. So Tai Chi is very interesting. It's the oldest of all martial arts. It's also extremely deadly when practice is a martial art. Every move is mm. a killing blow. Mm. And in Tai Chi, there are two paradoxes. The first paradox is the softer you are, the stronger you are. The second paradox okay. is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Ah, soft so the be, softer you are, the, the stronger more you are. The no, more soft to be strong, soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Okay, okay, all right. Did not compute. Hardcore trailer, <laughs> secondary black belt, <laughs> six one, two hundred and fifteen pounds, big man, just arrogant as you can possibly imagine. And but the paradoxes began to seep into me. And so finally in the late nineties, I was in a courtroom trying a case and the thought came to me, what the hell am I doing in here? Mm. And after that trip, we had a, I went with a bunch of friends amongst many other things that I do. I've done whitewater for many years, both the kayaker and a rafter. So we had a rafting trip planned up on the main salmon in Idaho. And I spent 10 days up there running the canyons in the whitewater, thinking about how many people I served as a trial lawyer. And I came to the conclusion that I only served five people in 20 plus years as a trial lawyer. And I said, I'm not going to, that people who went into the system better, the people went into the system and came out better off than they went in. And that's what you mean when you say served people, you right. mean that the people that you interacted with that you feel like came into the system and left. That doesn't, no. I won a lot of trials. I only lost two trials in my whole career. But wow. how many people had I really served? And not many. And so I decided I'm not going to do this anymore. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And he back to Central California, driving out of, down out of the mountains to my office in town and heard a public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University. And that got my attention. <laughs> Ultimately, I signed up. They accepted me. I enrolled. And for three years, I was a full-time graduate student a three-quarters time law professor <laughs> and a full-time wow. lawyer. And that was a pretty oh, crazy time. Wow. And then uh, the, the, I, my partners and I couldn't come to an agreement about what I wanted to do. They saw me as the goose that was laying the golden eggs. I was the second highest earner in the firm. The last thing that they wanted me to do was stop trying cases and earning money. And right. I, I said, right. can't do that anymore. So I gave them a week's notice and walked out. Left $10 million on the table. And opened up my own peacemaking and mediation practice on November 1st, 2000, and never looked back. And I'll tell really? you, Dallas, that was the best business decision I've ever made in my life. I don't make nearly as much money as I made in those days, but I have helped tens of thousands of people live, live better lives. And that mm. is so much more fulfilling than having a big bank account and driving a fancy car. Right. So yeah. that's how it all started. And the, the next big pivotal thing that happened to me is in 2005, I discovered in a very difficult conflict I was mediating the power of listening to emotions. Hmm. And I was able to get this divorce couple who would rather kill each other than listen to each other. I got them when it was all over with, they walked out holding hands and to go to lunch with each other. And four hours before they were screaming vile insults at each other. And I, that's after you, you engage with them, they come in for a session with you on mediating and they're mediating their divorce. No, they're mediating a, a, a very much. It's been each spent $50,000 in attorney's fees on an $18,000 promo. And I, I was, it was a kind of classic, really. Oh my goodness. That's how much they hated each other. And yet in four hours, I completely turned it around. Wow. And my jaw dropped. I, I couldn't believe the results. And it turns out you were shocked at your own success. I was. It was me. I knew, I knew what I'd done. And I said, this is crazy. This makes no sense whatsoever. 
So, and was this, you adapted what you had learned in your graduate studies and yes, all that, well, or you had, was it an amalgamation of all the different, that's what I think know, it was. And I think it was, I had been studying neuroscience. I started studying neuroscience in my graduate studies. And back then nobody knew what neuroscience was. Right. And I wrote the very first published academic article on the neuropsychology of peace and conflict. Ah. And and I had studied all this stuff. And here I was confronted with a situation that I had no training to, to deal with because no one ever taught me how to deal with intense conflict. And it, I just had an epiphany. Just that moment where all this knowledge concatenates into one idea and hmm. listen to the emotions, listen to what they're feeling hmm. and ignore everything else. And that's what happened. And that was the beginning of a whole new trajectory for me. And that led to five years later, the, I'll say in 2007, a seminal brain scanning study came out of UCLA, Matthew Lieberman's lab, in that, that showed why this technique called affect labeling worked. It showed exactly what was happening in the brain. And so now I had hard science to support the practice that was so effective. Ah. So you actually figured out what worked before it was actually supported by Correct. research. Correct. And then it was like, oh, we, now we've got, the, we've caught up to ourselves now. Exactly. So that's uh, exactly very right. interesting. Exactly right. Now I could teach it because it wasn't pop psychology and it wasn't just Doug Noel, it's about right. Doug Noel BS. Here's the practice yes. and here's why it works. And this is what's going on in the brain when you engage in this practice. Let's talk about that a little bit because now you've got, you've piqued my interest. So we've talked about divorced couple coming in meet for mediating a $50,000 each on mediating an $18,000 problem, leaving, going to lunch together. And you used a term called affect labeling affect there. Labeling. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about maybe unpacking that term and also understanding when you say this process that you're engaging in, tell the listeners a little bit about the labeling of emotions. Sure. Um, okay. If this is a gradual level course, <laughs> explanation. let's go. Okay. Uh, Listen, the <laughs> listeners of Think, Move, Thrive can handle it. These okay. are legit listeners. All right. All right. So first of all, let me first talk about Lieberman's study. What he showed was that when, when we be, get into an intense emotional condition in the brain, the emotional centers of the brain, which are dominate this whole central part of the brain in the limbic system. Completely overwhelm the prefrontal cortex and cause okay. a complete shutdown of the prefrontal cor cortex. Daniel Goleman calls it the am amygdalic hijack. And okay. we've all been there. And we get super angry. We get that tunnel vision. We can't think anymore. All we can do is just focus on lashing out the energy going out of us. Yes. Anybody that is anybody that has that, you just start feeling it rising up through your neck uh, and you're just right. like, oh, here we go. Right. You I'll just yeah. face. Uh, oh, there are all kinds mm -hmm. of somatic indicators that you're getting into this physiological condition. Right. What what happens this there there isn't any real science yet. There's some hints at this, but what I hypothesize is that when the prefrontal cortex is overwhelmed, it can no longer access some cognitive structures that we have in our brain. We think of it as an emotional database, and we no longer have access to that database. And mm. so now we can't process the emotion. We can only react to it. Uh, when we affect label, which we call an emotional listening, affect labeling is a technical term, but call it emotional listening. When I'm telling you, Dallas, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, I'm literally lending you my prefrontal cortex for the 90 seconds it takes for you to get back online and start processing stuff yourself. And that's why using affect labeling, you can call any angry person in 90 seconds or less. And it works on every single human brain on the planet. You cannot help yourself. I can't, you cannot remain angry at me when I start labeling your emotions. Okay. So what you're saying is if I am, if we're engaging in this conflict and I'm coming into the conflict and I say, Hey, I'm really upset. And you just stop and you start labeling what you, you perceive I'm feeling. If Here's you're getting that. Okay. Here's how that goes. You, you can say, Dallas man, you're pissed off. You're really mm. frustrated. You're really upset. You feel completely disrespected. Mm. Nobody's listening to you. You completely feel, you feel completely unsupported and unappreciated. And you're worried and anxious and nervous. And you're sad because you're looking for connection and support and it's just not there. And so you feel hopeless. And down at the, beneath it all, you feel like you've been completely abandoned and betrayed and rejected. 
and it's making you feel just completely worthless. And the whole thing is just really frustrating and making you angry. Wow. That's when you say it, you just, you actually do. That's amazing. You felt it, you didn't you? It lands. Yeah, you do. You really do actually. And I'm not even mad. So that's, uh, <laughs> you have, I'm like, you're exactly it. right. Rain, rain, calm down. Automatically. Automatically. That's incredible. So, so, so when we do that, you're giving your, it's almost like you're giving your brain time and space to reset Correct. so that you can get back. And I guess that's interesting that you would put it that way, because if you're in this emotional state where you're reacting, it's almost like fight or flight in a way. I'm in this mode. Or and then to get out of it, you have to get into this almost like safe. It's almost like you're putting them at ease. If they know that you're, if you're speaking what they're feeling, then there's like this understanding. Is that part of this deal Absolutely. where you understand they feel deep, safe? Absolutely. It's a deep validation of your emotional. A validation, yes. It's a deep oh, validation good. of your emotional experience, and that has a very deep calming effect on people. Oh, man. Um, and so, you, can, you, can, so, you can stop any kind of emotional upset in literally 90 seconds or less. That's, that's incredible. So the trick with that is, is like when we get into a conflict is to be aware that we're in the conflict to begin with so that we can do that. Because if we react right. with our own emotions, gone. You're gone. then we've lost it. We're done. Right. We're done. Here's the thing that's really cool, Dallas, is I teach and coach. I teach people how to do this. I coach people how to do this. I teach everything from maximum security prisons all the way up to the Congressional Budget Office, how to de-escalate members of Congress. The, when you learn this skill, it becomes so habituated that you no longer look at emotion as being something chaotic and difficult and anxiety producing. Instead, it's more like you're looking at somebody, it's like holding a little baby, an infant, and the baby poops in the diapers and you smell it and say, oh baby, you just pooped in your diapers, let me clean you up, <laughs> a lot of compassion. You get pissed off and I said, oh Dallas, you poor little baby, you're just pissed off and angry. You're just having an emotional moment and I know mm. exactly what to say and how to say it and when to say it in a way that calms you down almost instantly with pure compassion and certitude that this problem is going to go, is going to be solved very quickly. What I love about that is you're not really taking away anything from the person oh, in no. terms of you're not manipulating them no. into believing what you believe or no. thinking what you think. All you're doing is really, like you said, labeling their emotion and showing, I would think, what would feel like great empathy That's exactly right. uh, towards the person. And that just brings them to a place where you can then communicate again right. on a level playing field. That's right. Yep. So then you still may disagree, but you can disagree with the logic and, and reason well, instead of just fire and brimstone. <laughs> right. This is called cognitive empathy. It's a form mm. of cognitive empathy. And you're right. When you calm people down, your emotional experience is, is true and authentic. And there, and is, and, and now the reasons for the emotions might not be so legitimate, but the fact that you're right. having an emotional experience itself is those are legitimate and we can validate people's emotions without agreeing mm. about the reasons for the emotions. And then yes. what we learn is what I teach is you deescalate, then you problem solve. Right. And what people right. tend to do too much is they tend to jump to early problem solving, which only pisses people off and makes the problem even worse. Right. So you got to calm people that. down before you can actually engage them, as you said, in some sort of problem solving process to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Now, do you quantify that as that feels like what we would call like emotional intelligence? Would you quantify what you just said as having greater emotional intelligence? Yes, I, I actually don't like the word emotional intelligence. Ooh, this is great. That's emotional intelligence was a term that was coined in the late early 1990s by John Meyer and Peter Solovey. Solovey, I think now is the dean of Yale University. And they were looking at their psychologists and they were studying different kinds of social intelligences. And one of the intelligences they identified was emotional intelligence. And they developed an assessment called the, the Meyer-Solovey-Caruso Emotional Intelligence Test, the MSET, which is the gold standard for this. This, new, this guy's got a PhD, but he was a New York Times science writer by the name of Daniel Goleman, stumbled on their research and wrote this book called E e I EQ, why it's more important than EQ. It came out in, I think, 1995. It was a fabulous runaway bestseller. He's made millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on this. 
But the problem is the commercial concept of emotional intelligence is completely different than the academic. And the academic oh. will tell you that the commercial side is mostly all bullshit. Oh. Uh, and people make claims for which there's absolutely no supporting science. So here are a couple of things to think about. Number one, you cannot learn emotional intelligence. You just simply can't learn. Okay. And the reason you can't learn it is because it's an intelligence. It's like an IQ test. Can I teach you IQ? Oh, uh, no, you, you, you have it or you don't, right? Or well, you're a you, level. you can develop you're level. You can develop yeah. the skills that lead to higher IQ. Yes. But I yes. can teach you IQ. And I can't it's not a formula. It's not like if you learn a exactly. formula, all of a sudden you wake up and I'm, oh, I've got a higher IQ. Right. Yeah. What I can teach you is emotional competency. Mm. And there are three emotional competencies. Emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and cognitive empathy. And here's the thing that I've discovered that is so cool. You learn cognitive empathy through affect labeling. And as you practice affect labeling on yourself and other people, you automatically develop emotional self-awareness and emotional self-regulation. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. You, just, you reprogram your brain and your emotional intelligence starts to go through the roof. And guess what? It takes less than eight weeks for it to happen. Oh, man, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. It's actually. amazing. And the reason that I can say this with so much certainty is because of the Prison of Peace Project. Where for okay, let's talk about that because this is you, you let, tell the listeners, Prison of Peace Project, you're a co-founder right. of this work, this organization. Tell us a little bit about the organization, and then I want you to share because we were talking before the show. I want you to share this amazing story that you had, this right. experience. The very first story. Yes, well, the very first one. I had developed these deep listening skills and I was teaching them to lawyers and judges and mediators. And then in in August of 2010, I received a phone call from a dear friend and colleague, Laurel Coffer, who is a lawyer and mediator in Los Angeles. And she called me to read me a letter from a woman by the name of Susan Russo. And this Russo was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which at that time was Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California, about an hour and 20 minutes from where I live. And Ms. Russo had sent a letter to Laurel asking if Laurel would come in and train the, what they call the networking group, which is a group of about 150 lifers and long-termers, women serving life and long-term sentences in the prison because they were tired of the prison violence. And Laurel read me the letter and said, what do you think? And I thought about it for about an hour and a second. I said, this is legitimate. I think we should do this. And so to make a long story short, it took us eight months to finally get permission to begin. And we started in April of 2010 with 15 women. And this is you going and meeting with these? We went in once a week. In those days, we went in once a week for eight hours for 16 weeks in a row and trained Good. these women yes. in a very rigorous curriculum on how to become peacemakers and mediators to stop prison violence. And the very first skill we taught them was ethic labeling because that's the foundation of everything. So you're going into the prison, you're meeting with these women, and your goal is ultimately just to give them some tools and reprogramming essentially to help them lower the violence where they're living, like just stay alive so they don't kill each other in jail. That's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. We and so they, they left that and you had really good success with that program. We're in 15 California prisons today, a prison in Connecticut, 15 prisons in Greece and a prison in Northern Italy. Oh, wow. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That is so awesome. And, you know, we've had 700 of our students released in California on parole. We have not had one of them reoffend. Zero recidivism for our students. Really? Oh, that's, in, that's incredible. That's awesome. Powerful. Well, that, powerful. that's life changing. So powerful. Yes, absolutely. It makes sense, though. It does make sense. And the fact that it's something I love how you put that when you talk about emotional intelligence as related to IQ, you it, it, there's no it's not a formula. You can't just be like, read a book and ooh, I've got higher IQ. But what you're saying you can do with the cognitive empathy and the affect labeling is if you can participate in that. And it is a learned skill that you can learn. It's almost it's almost like one of those like keystone habits. Like it, it is. There's a, it's, it trickles out to everything else. So if it's we can learn this. It, it, in my opinion, this is the foundational skill of life. It mm. should be taught to every single child starting at age four. 
that would be an awesome skill to learn at age four. And it would probably make every elementary school teacher would be so much happier. The studies show that if you affect, start affecting children at between three and four, by the time they're 12, they're usually two grade levels ahead of their peers. And they've got the emotional maturity of a typical 21-year-old. That's just, that's incredible. But it makes, again, it makes sense because you, there's so much less friction in your own if you're just tamping down the fires that's coming up and well, just, you just give them so much more space to, to, to grow instead of act out. That's right. And, and, and most children are emotionally invalidated. So, and mm. what happens is they shut down, their emotional growth shuts down between years old. They become stunted. So they grow up with cognitively developed, but they don't grow up emotionally developed. Mm. And so by the, when they get into adulthood, they've got this big veneer around them, right? But when right. they get under stress or emotionality, they just revert back to where they were at six years old because they've They're never developed emotional maturity. Yeah, that makes sense. And I suffered from that. And But the beauty of it is it's all reversible. If you just learn this. Ah, well, this is awesome. I, I just, just, there's so many things that we could talk about with this. I, and I appreciate you going and, exp and really exposing a little bit about some misconceptions about emotional intelligence because you're right. It's a big topic, but I could totally see how there's pieces of it that are not really, that are more fluff and, and, or I don't know, maybe narratives. There are a lot of selling people, books, right? There are a lot of people who claim a lot about emotional intelligence, but first of all, where's their science? Mm -hmm. Second, can they demonstrate the skills? Can they demonstrate emotional self-regulation, emotional self-awareness, regulation, and empathy? Can they demonstrate it? And then the, can they show you that it's a teachable skill? And the answer is almost always no. That's true. Tell us a little bit about the story of the young lady that yeah. you met, that first story. Sarah, I, I right. think the listeners would enjoy that. A lot of stories out of the prison project, but the first story that really struck me was we were five weeks into the training of these first 15 women. And let me tell you something, the training in prisons is not like anything you've ever done before. There is no technology. It's all we take in flip pads and it's all old school because there's no technology allowed in the prison. And we are typically working in very dingy gardens that are about as aesthetically pleasing as, well, we won't go there. A dingy dark room. Really dingy dark room. <laughs> and it's very different. It, it is not a corporate learning environment at all. This is so we walk into cushy this chairs, dingy, PowerPoint presentations. Yeah, we walk into this right? dingy conference room with half the fluorescent lights aren't working and the others are flickering and it just, it's awful. But that's what mm. we're teaching. And we come in early and one of our students, Sarah, is sitting way out over in the corner and she's quietly sobbing. And we notice that. And that this is unusual behavior. So we walk over to her and Laurel knelt down next to her <coughs> and said, Sarah, what's going on? And Sarah told us the story. <clears throat> we never ask our students why they're in prison. If they want to volunteer, that's fine. But we never ask. But she volunteered and she's told us the story. I've been in prison for 18 years because as a drunk driver, I killed a family of four in an automobile wow. accident. And I came out of the accident completely unscathed. Mm. I was sentenced to 25 to life. And when I came, had to go to prison, I had to give up my three-year-old boy to my sister to raise. And I have been writing him every week for the last 18 years. He never talks to me on the phone. He's never come for a visit. The only way I know how he's doing is when I talk to his sister once a week. <clears throat> and then she said, last week, I decided to write a letter about him, not about me. I decided, I thought about all the emotions he must feel about a mother who's abandoned him and who humiliated him and hasn't been able to love him and, ha and the hatred he must feel and the loneliness and abandonment and all these horrible emotions that he felt. And I wrote him that letter. And today, for the first time in 18 years, I received a letter back from him. Now, the letter was really angry, and he was really wow. angry, and he had every right to be. And at the bottom of the letter, it said, I love you, Mom. I'm bringing my girlfriend, and I'm going to come visit you in three weeks. Good and then she started crying again. Good and gracious. I heard that. I didn't say a word. I was, just, I was stunned. And I said, holy crap. What do we, mm. what do we have here? Mm. And that was when I realized that we had something extremely powerful and precious that we were doing in the, in the prisons.
It's got to be a rewarding. Yeah. It's very interesting that your original kind of first career led you to a place of financial success. But for you, the measurement in you, know, we talk about living in the last 10%, you are obviously living in the last 10%, but then you just radically transitioned to a different right. measurement of what the last 10% was. Right. And I think that, I don't know if you realized it at the time, but it, did it feel, did that moment have anything that, that feel or, or did it did, over time, have you looked at that and said, man, that was a real milestone moment in the transition over to this new thing. Because man, when you hear a story like that and you've made that much difference in this young lady's life and you're doing it now in all these prisons all over the world, to me, that would be, that's winning the national championship in, well, in, in terms of. Yeah. I didn't know in 2000 that any of this would come down. I had no clue. Mm -hmm. I had an intuition or a belief that I was a peacemaker and a mediator and not a trial lawyer. And so that's what I was going to follow. And so I ended up getting a divorce shortly after that, gave up my big car, my fancy car, my 4,000 square foot home and all the trappings. And I ended up where I am today, which is on 10 acres and a 1,100 square foot home, a mile and a half up a dirt road. And awesome. I've never been happier. It's been amazing. Mm. And I help more people in a week than I helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, I want to talk to you about and turn this to, we have a lot of leaders on the podcast, that's listeners of the podcast. We have a lot of coaches. We have a lot of business owners and organizational leaders, whether that's for-profit or non-for-profit. And so we've talked a little bit about kind of the affect labeling. How does, how can leaders use this in, in leading teams and organizations as developing them, the kind of understanding? Because I think that if I was listening to this, I may hear the stories that you tell and just go, that's incredible but not really understand how to connect the dots in, right. in a lot of ways. So. so I do teach a lot of leaders these skills, and I do teach leadership development. I'm a senior consultant with Mobius Executive Leadership out of Massachusetts. The, what I've learned is counterintuitive and counternormative to everything we think we know about human nature. And that is that there is one number one, and you push back if you want, I'm ready for it. Number one, there's no such thing as rationality. There is no such thing as rationality. Right. This whole myth of rationality has been perpetrated on us by philosophers and theologians for 4,000 years. And they have made a fundamental assumption that what separates humans from other species of animals is that we're reason we can reason and we have rationality. And it, neuroscience says bullshit to that. There is no such thing as rationality. Every single decision we make is an emotional decision. Yes, and I had a, a no neurostrategist, a neurostrategist on the show before said, "We're people want to think that humans are logical. They're not logical. They're psycho psychological." Well, <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. All of our decisions are emotional. We are emotional right. beings. What separates humans from other species of animals is our emotions. We're the only species that have emotions, and mm. what. The, other, the second point that people don't realize is that we are not born with emotion. We have to, we literally create emotions at about 18 months of age. We are born with something called affect, which is essentially the feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness that we experience throughout the day. But what we have to do as we begin to verbalize is take all these affective experiences and categorize them into emotions. So we have nine basic affect, three pleasant, one neutral and six negative affect. And we take, it's like an artist palette. We can take these affect and combine them in various different ways and intensities and come up with an infinite number of emotions. And so we have words that we create as cognitive constructs to describe all of these affective experiences. And these emotions vary from culture to culture. The Finnish language, for example, has certain words, emotional words that don't exist in North America. Hmm. So that's the second thing we have to realize is that we are not born with emotion. We have to create them. The third thing we have to realize is that as a society, we diminish emotions. Emotions are weak. They're irrational. They make you vulnerable. It's not manly to be emotional. That's right. Uh, or you can only display anger, for example, in corporate America. All total bullshit. Mm -hmm. all, all these myths are created to protect, to soothe our own anxiety around emotions because we don't, we've never been taught how to be emotionally competent. 
Do you think, so, do you think this is a good question on that? You feel like, cause I feel like there's a stigma too around masculinity that there's a lot, I think there's a lot of men that would struggle with even the idea of approaching, like talking about emotions because they may feel so uncomfortable because they don't even, they wouldn't even know how to express it to begin with. Do you see that in a lot of your exactly. training? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you can't blame men for that because they've never been trained properly. How, what emotions are, how they function, how we use them, how there are hidden genius and superpower. They were mm. taught by their parents and their grandparents that emotions are bad. Emotions make you weak. If you, when you're a three-year-old and you're out running around and you fall down and skin your knee, you're told to suck it up. Don't cry. Mm -hmm. Rub dirt in it. It doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely told not to feel emotions because when you're emotional as a little boy, you're creating anxiety in your parents because they don't know how to deal with you. And so what their brains are saying is shut this kid up so I don't feel nervous about his emotions anymore because mm. that's the way they were raised. Emotions are mm. to be avoided at all costs mm. because we're uncomfortable with them. And what we know now in the last 20 years is that there are skills that teach us how to be with our emotions. And when we learn those skills, we unleash a hidden genius that makes us 50 times more powerful than anybody around us. And we unlock that hidden genius by learning how to affect label. So you, as a leader, once you have this skill, which you can learn in eight weeks, it does not take long to master. You have to practice it. But it only takes eight weeks for the average person to, to master this skill. You can walk into any room, any meeting, immediately assess what's going on emotionally, know exactly what to say and how to say it, and remain perfectly calm inside yourself, no matter what somebody says. I've been reading, I'm sure you've been following this whole Sam Altman thing with OpenAI oh, and how oh, screwed yeah. up, what a screwed up mess that was. <laughs> I can oh, guarantee you that who, I, that board of directors was in, had to be incredibly dysfunctional in the way they handled that. That would never oh, happen to one of my students, either one of my, any of my boards that I train or any of my CEOs. That would never happen, not in a million years. And, and yeah. that was just, that was a pure display of emotional incompetence. It really is bizarre. I think when you're, everybody's reading the reports, you just it, think it's, it's emotional like, incompetence. It's yeah. predictable. <laughs> it's We're going to see right. this kind of over and over again because leaders are not trained to be emotionally competent. Mm. Mm. And that's the problem. And, and it's problem. sad because it's so easy to become emotionally competent. And when you do, everything changes. You never have a fighter argument again in your life. Not at work. Not with your peers, not with your colleagues, not with your board, not with your investors. And you do not have a fight or argument ever again at home with your partner or your kids ever. Fights and arguments go away. And that is simply because you understand how to bring the level of emotions back down to where you can engage in a conversation. That's right. Or a debate, but not an argument where it's this yelling That's match. You, you, know, you can calm people down to a point where now you can engage in some kind of problem solving process. Hmm. And, and, and get things straightened out. Is that, is that kind of what you mean? You've used the term listening others into existence. Yeah. Is that concept in a nutshell or it how is. would you? It is. Yeah. And where that came from was I was teaching, I was working uh, in the Fresno Unified School District training teachers how to use these skills. And I was doing some advanced training in a peace circle. And in, a, in our talking circles, you practice the skill of listening and validating. And when we were all done, I was doing a debrief. And one of the people in the circle, one of the participants was, a, was an administrator, superintendent, assistant superintendent. And she started to cry. And she says, that's the first time I've ever been heard before in my life. I've always been invisible. I've never been heard. I felt like you people listened me into existence for the first time in my life. Put together late 30s, early 40s, professional woman, well-educated. That was her experience. And she said, I felt listened to no existence. I said, oh, okay, that's exactly what's going on here. That's incredible. That was the way she framed her emotions in that. That's a very vivid description. I, I love that. And I think it's true because this desire to be known, I think is innate. In, to be heard, just think, to be heard. Yeah, just to be heard. You know? How many and people just, have really been heard in their lives? Almost mm -hmm. nobody. There's Thanks. so much static and noise anyway. There's so much coming at us, even if it's not you're fighting with somebody. If it's just like you're driving down the road and there's a billion billboards in the radio or the, right. the Spotify or whatever's going, you just there's so much static. Thousand emails, 
And then yeah. you just want to be heard. And you can, with these skills, you cut through all of that. And the beauty of it is it's a priceless gift to give. And it costs you nothing to give it. Nothing. Mm. And, you, and when you listen to somebody at this very deep level, they are so grateful. You get this immediate positive animation coming back to you, their gratitude for you for taking the time to listen to them, that it becomes a self-fulfilling practice until you get to the point in eight weeks where this is all you want to do is affect label because it feels so good <laughs> to do it and to get the gratitude back. That's it's incredible. interesting. That's very interesting. How does this relate to the idea of active listening? No, take away that word. Get rid of that word, active listening. The term was coined by Thomas Gordon, who was okay. a psychologist. He got his PhD out of uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was a student of the great human psychologist, Carl Rogers. And he was the one that okay. coined the term active listening in Carl Rogers' yes. last book in 1956. Yes. He had observed that when people are in arguments, they do a lot of shaming and blaming by saying you. Mm. And what he taught, which was correct, was that when you are talking about your own emotions, rather than blame somebody else, assert your own emotional experience and then request a change in behavior. So, for example, when you leave your socks on the floor, I get really frustrated because I feel like I'm your mother and I have to keep cleaning up after you. Would you be willing to clean up after yourself every now and then so that, so that I don't feel so frustrated? Mm -hmm. That's the formulation. Totally accurate. And he went Very around accurate, teaching yeah. people how to do this eye listening. Then what happened was the human potential movement of, of the late 50s and early 60s and then the therapeutic movement picked up this, picked this thing up as active listening and they turned it into this perverse, ridiculous formulation that goes something like this. Dallas, what I think you're really feeling is anger. Dallas, what I hear you saying is X. Dallas, what I hear you, what I see you feeling is anger. It's all about the mm -hmm. I statement again. Well, I and see. Yeah. And the reason yeah, no. that people use the I statement is because it's self-soothing. Because when I say I, I am now withdrawing into a third person passive voice and I'm right. pulling away from you and yes. I'm soothing my own anxiety around your emotion. Hmm. And how do you feel? You don't feel heard. You feel pissed off because right. now the, the, the whole process is about me, the, the listener. It's I. Right. Get active listening. Yeah. The right no, term, the correct term is reflective listening using a you statement. Yes. You're yes. angry. You're frustrated. You're pissed off. That's you don't feel heard. You're really scared and terrified. Listening. Yeah, I think that's yes. I think I can totally agree with that. And reflective listening makes sense. And the practice that a good coach would be doing that, whether they understand that they're doing active listening or reflective listening, hopefully they're practicing reflective listening, whether they say active or not. <laughs> but I love your, I love the way that you've broken down the history of that. And you obviously have a great command of these terms in psychology behind them. So I think that's good. And reflective listening is fantastic. If you were going to offer advice to someone that's engaging in they're a leader, but they're also engaging in developing their team members. Oh, so yeah. maybe I'm a project manager and I'm engaging in developing my people. What advice would you give to a coach? Because we have a lot of coaches listening. What advice would you give to a coach engaging in that process of coaching? First of all, I think the number one duty of any leader is to develop leaders in their direct reports. And actually, they should be working two levels down. If yes. you're not working on developing leaders below you, you are failing as a leader. That's your number mm -hmm. one job. You're, tr you're trying to train people to take your job over. And if you don't like that, if, you got, if you're too ego involved to do that, then you don't belong in leadership. You belong doing something else. Become That's a right. trial lawyer. <laughs> ego works as a trial lawyer. It does not work in leadership. <laughs> I um, love it. And I can speak from personal experience on that. <laughs> so how do you develop leaders? The first thing you do is you model Leadership That's behaviors. Right. So that means you've got to have really strong emotional competency. You've got to demonstrate emotional self-regulation, emotional, emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, cognitive empathy. You've got to be able to listen to people at a very deep level using both type one and type two listening as appropriate. You've got to, you've got to take the time to really understand 
your people. And then you have to teach them how to understand the people below them. What is it that makes them tick? What motivates people? What gets them excited? What turns them off? What do they really like about what they do? What do they hate about what they do? If they didn't have to work, what would they do? Right. All these questions so that you can understand a little bit better what makes them work. Instead of telling people to park their emotions to the door, say, bring in all your emotional, bring everything you've got. I want everything here at the table. I want you to bring your whole self onto my team and we're going to work with it. Create, learn how to create emotional safety on the team by affect labeling and getting rid of gossip and getting rid of judgment and getting rid of criticism and learning different ways of coaching people for improvement rather than criticizing and giving feedback. Feedback's older. You've just mm-hmm. got, you've got to give people coaching instructions every single day. You coach for incremental improvement. You're not looking for right. gigantic performance leaps. And you just make this a practice. Mm, and that's, that's how you're fantastic. going to get a high-performing team. I love it. And I I love how you phrased that where you bring your whole self. And we definitely preach that a lot in our one-on-one coaching system. And I I do think it's interesting because a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with that idea. They're like, look, I want to engage you as it relates to your roles and responsibilities. I need this report on Friday. I need you to show up on Monday. I need this and this, and it's very transactional. And I just find that people lose so much more of the value and performance when you operate in that space. Cause That's right. you're not, you're never going to get the hundred percent unless you take a hundred percent of them. And so I think that's really, that's I think it's right. really that's exactly right. That's exactly right. right. You can take a couple of minutes. Right. So, so, Hey Dallas, man, tell me what's going on in your life right now. Mm. And you start telling me what's going on in your life. I ethically label you. You feel deeply hurt and validated. I say, cool. Hey, the report's due on Monday. You're going to be able to get it in on time, or do you need some help? Hmm. What awesome. do you think that person's going to do? Oh, they're so they're going to probably show you gratitude, like That's you right. were saying and earlier. Thank you so much to get the report done. <laughs> and if they can't get it done on Monday, they're going to be honest with you and say, honestly, I don't think I can. I got too many. I've got here are all the other things I've I've got going, and. Maybe I need some help from prioritize stuff so that I have, I get some help. So they feel safe. They can ask for help rather than awesome. just feel like they call themselves and be the macho guy and kill themselves from stress. That's awesome. I love that. That's, that's great. Leadership. That's, that's leadership. That's down the middle. That is down the middle leadership right there. I love that. And, and yet, I love uh, nobody. Yeah. Can. But yeah, there's so few, everybody that knows someone that is practicing that, it's just like, oh my goodness, I, this, uh, but based on your techniques here that you've been able to share, if we can learn how to affect labor, it's not as much, it's not as hard as you would think. No, it's simple. <laughs> it just takes practice. You just got to have That's the right. knowledge. You got to know how to do the skills and then you have to practice the skills. It's like riding yeah, a bicycle. Be consistent. Yeah, and you got to be consistent. consistent. Over eight weeks and you can learn how to do this and it changes everything. That's awesome. Let's talk about this. You've got, you teach it, it graduate you level at college at Pepperdine. You're an author speaking. You offer courses. You do all these things. Tell our listeners how they can find your material, your books, your courses, and that. Where can right. they go to my website, Doug Noel, D O U G N O L dot com. And on the homepage, there are a whole bunch of questions. What brings you here? And just they're all hyperlinked. So just click on whatever question you heard. I've got courses on de-escalating people and on developing emotional competency that are quite sophisticated in terms of how they work. I've written four books. The last one, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, came out, Atria, Simon Issue, The Onwards in 2017, and is doing very well commercially. That's awesome. I'm sure it is. And of course, much much needed these days. (laughs) I engage each and train and coach individuals, teams, and and organizations in these skills. And that's what I do. So I will not mention who it is, but I will say there is a religious group in North Carolina that's engaging me to train their teams in these skills for the work, the outreach work they're doing in their ministry. So I'll be working with them in the first quarter of next year. That's that's a typical engagement where I can come in and teach teams and groups of people how to do this or individual leaders can come in and say, I want to learn these skills. And so we do a very intense eight to 12 weeks of training, depending on how long you want to learn these skills. 
That's awesome. And, and I, of course, I speak and do workshops and that sort of stuff too. And we can find we can the listeners can find all that on your website. All my website. Deal. You can okay, great. find me on LinkedIn. If you don't want to go to my website, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm a very prolific poster on LinkedIn. So <laughs> go there. And I just today I posted on a Thanksgiving dinner that almost went sideways until one of the family members knew how to affect label. Oh. Save the meal. So if you want some help for your Christmas dinner, this is to check him out on LinkedIn because he's posting on that already. So this has been great. Now we always end the show asking our guests who they would like to hear be a guest on the last 10%. So Doug, who would you like to hear as a guest on the last 10%? I think you should have my wife as a complete contrast to who I am. My <laughs> wife is a spiritual teacher and counselor okay. but with deep wisdom. And she works with she works with a lot of corporate people, a lot of corporate leaders, mostly women, okay. teaching them deep, deep inner skills to get rid of anxiety, get rid of imposter syndrome, and really t mm. tuck into their divine self and see themselves mm. as divine beings of light, and from that perspective, navigate the world. So she's wow. That sounds like a very interesting, interesting gift. Very, uh, guest very and very different. But we we are bonded together. I've never been happier since being married to her and we just have an amazing oh. life. Wonderful. We'll have to reach out and, and see if we can have uh, get her on the show. We appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom. You had so many things to, to discuss and unpack around affect labeling and validating emotions and how to manage conflict. I know the listeners got a lot out of this today. So we just appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom with us, Doug. I appreciate you being on the last 10%. Thank you, Dallas. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.